0: Uh, Good afternoon. My name is uh, Mackenzie Kosin. I'm the Global Startup Evangelist for Amazon Web Services. Uh, My background comes from a lot of large enterprises years ago, including Viacom uh, and MTV, doing a lot of logistics works and advanced engineering at DHL. But I got into the startup world uh, back in the Tumblr days. So I was one of the early engineers there, and Tumblr, of course, was the uh, first billion-dollar exit out of New York City. Uh, I was a founding engineer at Oscar, which is uh, a health insurance company out in New York City today that's about a thousand plus employees, uh, valued north of 3.4 billion dollars, uh, and also ran a bunch of engineering teams over at Betterment, which today is the largest uh, independent robo advisor with, I think over 15 billion dollars in assets under management. So I have a lot of uh, interesting enterprise experience and startup experience, and it 's why I joined here at, uh, at Amazon to help talk to startups and give mentorship and guidance. So I spend my days actually visiting startups all over the world to hear about what they're building. And it puts me in a very unique position to kind of see trends and patterns that are emerging. Um, It's it's interesting to see kind of the the unique challenges across each industry. Uh, And that's kind of what the birth of this talk was. And I think my next slide is this, is a modern startup. Now, when we conceptualized this talk, we thought this would be great. Let's get some of the most interesting patterns, and architectures that we're seeing and let's share this. Uh, but in reality, this talk's actually pretty hard to execute because as you know, your industry has very niche challenges and the way you can solve that, there's many different ways that you can architect to solve those problems, but it's not necessarily a, here's a solution I can, I'm looking at, and let me just copy and paste this into my environment. And that's actually what reInvent really is. We have uh, all these sessions that are about seeing a one-hour talk going into detail about a specific problem and how teams engineered for this. What these talks usually also include is kind of the best practices, what you've learned uh, by doing this or building this. And I was trying to think of how to actually make this talk valuable. And I I thought, let's let's try to go the other way around. Let me talk about some of the most important best practices for actually doing good engineering and architecting systems that I find myself commonly asking startups when I visit or seeing out in the wild. And the hope here is you'll get a chance to, to kind of go back and, and figure out the right questions to ask while you're building. So you won't necessarily leave the session with a uh, terraform of, hey, here's what I can just start deploying into my environment, but questions to be asking your teams, ways to think about um, uh, you know, whether or not you're on the right path when you're, when you're building. These are questions I, I, I've run across in every company I've worked at. To hit the technical piece, we also have a guest speaker who is uh, Roy Penn, he's the VP of Engineering of Amenity Analytics at New York City. If you're not familiar with them, uh, Roy built uh, a lot of natural language processing uh, entirely serverlessly. So he's gonna talk about kind of the organizational shift uh, and how that evolved from going from a Docker environment to uh, serverless and what that meant for the teams themselves. When I think about great engineering, there's a lot that goes into this, it could essentially be a flywheel, but this is what I think about when uh, I meet engineering teams and they're doing something that's pretty interesting. They're either using best practices that have been proven, they have great philosophical beliefs about how they're approaching problems, they're using proven, tested patterns, they have experience that they're falling back on when they're building. Uh, The most important one to me is that they have simplicity, they're building simple, easy to understand systems that are easy to debug they open to new technologies, and there's some ingenuity in there. So the four areas I wanna touch on, and I'm I'm gonna back this up with some startup examples to to kind of demonstrate why I think these are great examples, um, are these four principles. So to dive in, well, actually, uh, and these are the companies that I'm gonna be using to kind of back up these points. Out of curiosity, is anyone here from any of these companies? No one? Well, let's learn. Every time um, in any startup environment, this is the number one thing I spend more time doing. It's just going and trying to find any time that there's a blocker or a wait state. Any time I find any team waiting on another team to, whether it's provisioning a server, whether it's getting approval for, for uh, uh, deploy, whether it's any kind of human interaction. Uh, any time there's human-to-human interaction, I spend a lot of my time and my team's time finding ways to automate that. Uh, I did talk five years ago at the Alassian World Conference, um, back when I was with Oscar, talking about kind of how chat ops change our organization a great deal. And I know chat ops is kind of an old concept by now, but I don't see a lot of teams leveraging it. And I want to demonstrate why this is so powerful within our organization. So... the great thing about ChatOps is you're able to abstract away from all of these services. So as a developer or anyone in your organization, you have one common consistent way to interface with all of your systems. So of course, you can do simple things like provisioning a server. Here I am provisioning one and saying this is the branch I want. It'll go, it'll spin up that, that EC2 instance, but it's also gonna make sure it's in the right security groups, that it has the right permissions on it, that it's um, uh, that's part of the right clusters. This, is, this takes care of all of the Uh, you know, basically the guardrails for developers. But it gets more interesting. So at Oscar, we dealt with a lot of, uh, it's a healthcare company, so we're in a very regulated uh, environment. We deal with HIPAA. And so uh, our developers are trying to constantly develop against databases that are, are always changing under their feet. Uh, we are doing database migrations often, adding columns here and there. And so in order to develop against that, you need a test database that's actually up to, it's up to date in terms of schema and data. But you can't necessarily give production data to a developer to look at that. Uh, we want to protect our members' data. So again, this is a really nice, simple thing you can do when you start abstracting away from these services. So we had a very easy way for developers to say, here's my dev database. And when they run that command, it'll pull a snapshot from uh, an RDS instance, it'll run through an anonymization process to scrub that data out, it'll uh, it'll shrink down that data so it's a smaller data set, so you can use a smaller RDS instance, and it'll refresh that dev database. And so this is very on-demand self-service, and it's what we always try to think about when we want to start enabling our development teams. We want to be finding ways to build these tools and services so people can just work on their own, but they have the right guardrails that they're they're doing the right thing uh, automatically. But I also encourage you to think beyond just AWS itself. So we're constantly adding and removing uh, VPN users, and so all that's automated to where you can just say, hey, I'd like to add a uh, user to VPN, and it'll generate an email and your certificate. Our goal, this all comes back to finding areas where we found Teams, waiting on other Teams, and then building these self-service tools to make it quick to, to let Teams just build and get access to the resources they needed. So the takeaways here are really, anytime you see human-to-human interaction, try to, try to automate that. And I'll show you through a couple more examples where you'll see these best practices emerging. Uh, self-service, there's lots of ways to do that. Just enable your developers and, and find ways to, to give them access to these resources. Uh, and the biggest piece is, I stole it from the Unix uh, philosophy, but you know, build modularly and write simple parts connected by clean interfaces. This allows you to swap out the components as you start growing. Uh, anytime you build a super tightly coupled system, it makes it difficult to try a new service, to try to swap something in. So if you try to keep these components loosely coupled and uh, easy to, to swap out when you want to try something new, uh, it allows you to keep trying new technologies and, and evolving that infrastructure. This ties into, of course, enabling your developers. Um, one company I've been working with for years at a uh, New York City ZocDoc They had a very interesting problem, which was they were uh, primarily a Windows shop at the time. They wanted to migrate uh, a lot of their infrastructure over to AWS. Uh, They wanted to start migrating that to a lot of open-source projects and uh, Linux. But their team of 100-plus developers had very little experience uh, with using AWS. And so the CTO at the time, uh, Serkan, he's done great talks about this. His solution was... I'm just gonna give every single dev in my company a $100 account to play with every month. And uh, those, instances, those accounts are gonna get deleted and recreated, so no one's gonna build anything that will become production all of a sudden. So this allows uh, developers kind of to get their hands on new services and play around with them. Well, this is enabling them by giving them access to the 200 plus services we have today, but it's not really giving them a goal of something to, to build and solve within ZocDoc's environment. So hackathons became a really big part of ZocDoc's culture, which is really a critical piece. Um, They would uh, have a little Shark uh, uh, Tank-like show within the company, Um, and people would pitch their ideas of, anywhere they saw a pain point within the company, uh, they would pitch, hey, let's try to build this. Um, Here are some Amazon services we can use to try to solve it. And a lot of interesting innovation happened within ZocDoc once they did that. Uh, so they've migrated over entirely uh, uh, in terms of um, uh, basically enabling these 100 plus developers to be familiar with AWS. And, and uh, there was a great talk last year about uh, stuff they're doing around machine learning and being able to read insurance cards. So it's a lot of this stuff comes from again being open to to having your company you know play around and actually experiment. It's more fun. Um, so again, when I see good engineering within companies, it's, it's companies who are enabling their teams, they're encouraging and testing these, these new ideas, and they're open for, for suggestions from across the company. Next thing is everything continuous all the time. This again goes back to wait states, uh, people kind of sitting around waiting for things to happen. Um, next door, like many companies, uh, still has a pretty big monolith. I mean, Slack, Instagram, other companies still have a monolith that's hard to get rid of over time. It takes time to do that. Um, But they wanted to figure out how to kind of speed up their deployments. So the first approach is kind of tackling the, uh, doing continuous deployment with uh, monoliths and their approach to doing this, and there's a great engineering blog post you can read about this titled, well, it's up there at the top. But, uh, you know, their approach for this was just doing release trains. And if you have to do monoliths, this is a great approach. But as they started to deploy microservices within ECS, uh, ECS um, they, let me, let me back up. When they, uh, uh, when they were originally deploying these uh, services, they were using Debian packaging. They were, using, uh, they were basically doing the red-black deployment that Netflix recommends for deploying whole new infrastructure, deploying out these Debian packages and running them. Uh, and it was taking about an hour to do a full deploy for them which is actually terrifying, right? You get your code out to production, something goes wrong, and that means you have one hour to actually roll that change back. Um, So again, there's a lot of great talks from Nextdoor about their their migration and and how they did this deployment, or did this migration. They have a great blog post about it, but they ended up landing on uh, doing uh, ECS um, and got the deployments down to about five or seven minutes. So today they're doing about 20 or 30 deploys a day. And what was the quote I put on here? Oh, why this is important. Every single company I've ever worked at, it always starts with how long are deploys taking and why is that? And that ends up being a four-month investigation process and trial and error and and digging into it. And so my biggest takeaway from this is find those things that are taking a long long amount of time and encourage your company to be asking those questions and trying to solve it. Nobody wants to sit around waiting an hour for deployers to happen, and it always starts with a simple question of why? Why are we waiting around for an hour on this? Um, And again, you'll see the self-service piece down below that Nextdoor's whole goal across engineering is um, helping enable the developers. So takeaways, again, how long does X take? Keep diving into that. Um, And a lot of people try to figure out, well, what's worth spending time on? And my favorite question that you can always ask an engineering team is... Um, what problem are you trying to actually solve? And that will, that will prevent a lot of, there's a lot of people who want to just build something because it's a fun thing to work on. But when you get down the core of, are you actually solving a problem for the business? That, that helps kind of dive down to whether, or basically drill down to whether or not it's a valuable time or valuable place to be spending engineering resources. Um, and secondly, if you can't actually demonstrate that there's any kind of bottleneck that exists, then don't spend time to, to uh, you know, improve it. There's plenty of times I've seen teams who are just swapping out languages or technology just because it's something new to play with, but that last point really kind of eliminates those time wasters. <laughs> uh, It's funny how often um, when I talk to teams and they say, oh, we have this really amazing stack, and they talk about how complicated it is. And in a way, when I'm hearing this, it it actually just pushes me away from thinking that they're actually doing great engineering. To me, great engineering is about building simple, understandable systems. Uh, At Tumblr, we had a thing that we called the 3 a.m. test. It meant if you wake up and you're drunk at 3 a.m., can you make sense of these systems? Can you figure out what is going on? And if you can't, then your systems are too complicated. Um, If you're not familiar with John Gall, he had a law. uh, The law states that all complex systems that work evolve from simpler systems that worked. If you want to build a complex system that works, build a simpler system first and then improve it over time. If you try to build a super complicated system and then hit the power on switch, it is very likely to fail, and that's... That's Gall's law, essentially, is that you want to be starting with something simple and evolving it over time. And when you do that, you keep the other principles in place, making sure it's modular, making sure it's understandable. Um, and so let me give you an example of, of how this can play out with great engineering. Uh, Reddit had an interesting challenge. They wanted to start serving out a billion video views uh, natively on their platform. And that's a billion views a month. A lot of companies look at that and say, that's an enormously big task and challenge. Let's, uh, let's get a team on it. Well, Reddit put two people, I think roughly part-time, to solve this for them. And in a very short amount of time, they looked at what they had to build, and they built a very simple architecture, which essentially just puts, it, it receives the, uh, the video, puts into an S3 bucket, it processes it uh, with Lambda to do the transcoding on it, and then it uses uh, SNS and SQS to publish back that that transcoding was done. Now, to me, this is great in engineering because they're processing a billion videos a month. They had a very small team to do this. And everyone in this room can look at this slide and very easily, if something's not working, it's very easy to look at this diagram and figure out where something's probably not, uh, not functioning correctly. Um, so again, you can do a lot with, with simplicity. Uh, I'm about to share a time when something went horribly wrong which these are always the best stories and you people I think get a lot of thrill out of hearing when companies or entire sites go down and I want to tell this story because um, a lot of people want to be engineering safety features into their infrastructure they think I want to add more automation uh, and more control to where bad things can't happen and every time you do that you're just introducing a more uh, complex and complicated way that your systems can fail uh, magnificently and to demonstrate that or give me an example of that um, at tumblr years ago we were sadly running in a data center we had 3,500 servers sitting there we were using Facebook's uh, scribe service to aggregate we were generating three or four petabytes of log data a day and it was going to these central log servers we knew that forwarding these logs off our of web servers was critical, and so one of the features we had in there is if a log server stops forwarding log messages, it'll uh, generate an error saying, hey, I'm not able to forward these logs, which makes sense. Where this failed us is one afternoon, one of the engineers upgraded the, uh, the servers where these logs are being ag- aggregated, didn't realize that um, it wasn't receiving any more log data. So all of a sudden, there's 3,500 servers who are trying to contact and say, hey, I got log data I'm trying to send you. We have millions of people trying to hit this website. And what do these web servers do? For every log entry that it couldn't forward, it said, hey, I can't forward this, which generated another one that said, hey, I can't forward this. So it started multiplying very quickly. And so the safety feature ended up being... um, pretty damaging to the infrastructure to where uh, suddenly you saw web server after web server go offline, database servers going offline, caching servers go offline. Every single server within the infrastructure died and it caused a, uh, about a 12 hour recovery going to this physical data center and powering it back on and restarting everything in the right order to make sure your caching layer didn't you know, slaughter your web servers. And so I, I tell this because The intention was right that we built the safety mechanism to tell us when something wasn't going correctly, but it just amplified the problem to where it completely obliterated our entire site. So whenever you're adding a safety feature, just be aware that it's added complexity that might actually uh, end up hurting down the line. And and if you talk to people who are, uh, there's a lot of great talks around chaos engineering, which is fantastic, but that balance of how much safety versus um, you know, where is that line of how many, how many, how much safety be building into your infrastructure, and that's kind of an ongoing debate. So it's it's interesting. I think chaos engineering is fantastic. I, I highly encourage it, but just be aware. Um, I was reading the the um, the Three Mile Islands uh, post mortem, uh, and I came across this, which um, talks about you know, generally a lot of the time these big system failures are. Something human, something tiny, and it just ends up manifesting itself in a much larger way. Uh, so it's a great, it's a great law there. There's some takeaways. Democratize uh, your data. I'm going to skip through this very quickly. But um, another great example of a company just doing good engineering, in which all these principles expose themselves, is with uh, Intercom. So Intercom had this problem where. Uh, you know they need to make sure that a user, they need to make sure that when they're contacting a user they're in the proper state, and user states evolve and mutate over time, And um, if the message doesn't get sent, uh, they need to start debugging it. So the customer service team would then contact the engineering team and say, "Look, we're trying to find out why this message did or did not send for this user at this time." And they would go grepping through logs. it would be error-prone, it would take a lot of time. And so here you have this human-to-human interaction. You have a team that's dependent on another team. And uh, the the two engineers there uh, decided, you know what, let's build a self-service tool to do this, right, which goes back to that first point. So they uh, looked at it and they said, you know what, we'll use Dynamo Streams and we will capture the different states of users and we are going to store that into a user history DynamoDB table. Uh, And we'll build a simple Ruby interface to this. And now the customer service team was enabled to go and research anyone they need, uh, which which essentially within seconds, they can answer this question on their own. So here again is very simple infrastructure. If I look at this, it's solving a really good problem within the company. If something breaks, I can very quickly look at this and figure out where a component's breaking. it just has all the principles we've been talking about so far. Not a lot of added extra safety features. It's not logging whenever it's saying it can't log. But this is, this is again, just a, a good example of how these engineering practices come into play uh, when I come across um, good architectures. The last piece is um, really developing a culture of openness. Though um, know, I, I grab these stories from talks that these companies have done uh, from engineering blog posts that are posted um, there was nothing more valuable. That's a terribly worded sentence. One of the most valuable things uh, that uh, I encouraged with any of my engineering teams was getting them together with other engineering teams in the, within the city and just sharing what they're building. To brainstorm and iterate with other engineers and say, look, I'm thinking about building this and testing this out. Do you see any faults with this? Or do you have a different way to do this? It's so much quicker than actually trying to deploy this yourself and test it and build it. Um, so we're able to, to through, through just talking, iterate on these architectures and infrastructures much quicker. Uh, a company does this really well. If somebody asks, who's an example of somebody who we should be replicating a segment? Uh, for example, their entire ECS infrastructure and all their Terraform, Terraform, Terraform uh, is on GitHub. It's a public repo, so you can go on there and you can deploy the same enterprise-grade uh, ECS environment that segment has and they have tons of contributors on there they have uh, you know, people working on issues and pull requests but it's, here's a company who's being very open about how they're building and architecting their systems and they're getting the whole community to help improve their own stack which I, I absolutely love so it's a cool project to take a look at uh, I don't think anyone here disagrees that open sourcing projects or what you're doing is valuable um, but it just takes that initial push to get your company to start doing it Uh, The second thing is just writing these blogs. This is a great blog that uh, Calvin, their CTO and co-founder, wrote uh, about a month ago. And he talks about um, a $10 million engineering problem, which is looking at the total cost of goods sold and uh, figuring out how he can tweak and optimize his infrastructure to squeeze an extra $10 million of revenue out of his, his business. And he talks about what they looked at, how they drilled down to find out where the best amount of time should be spent to to optimize the return. Um, So Segment's just a great example of that. Uh, My final conclusion on this is you can build complex systems. Each component should aim to be simple, modular, leveraging available APIs, stuff that's off the shelf. Don't build stuff that already exists. uh, A good piece of this is if you're thinking about trying to build a gap within one of the services that exists today, talk to your account rep and say, look, we're thinking about trying to build a solution. We're going to have it done in about three months, and they will be very open with our roadmaps to find out if this is something that we're going to be providing down the road. A lot of times I see teams spend a lot of resources and time building something that ends up being an offering down the line. And so I, I, just be aware of, of where you're spending what problems you're actually solving. Uh, and then once you actually do that, go out there and build and share it. Um, but I'd actually like to take the chance to uh, welcome Roy up. So please, round of applause for, uh, for Roy. And he's going to talk about the impacts in philosophy and culture when shifting to serverless. So. Thank you, McKinsey, uh, for a very inspirational set of
1: examples. Uh, I hope that I can show uh, how some of those examples uh, reflect inside amenities, Uh, Journey as we worked our way from serverful to serverless uh, uh, infrastructure. And by the way, if anyone has any questions, raise your hand. If we have a couple of minutes, uh, I'll be happy to uh, uh, to answer those. Uh, So, um, a nice thing that I that I have in my mind all the time is that technology specifically doesn't disrupt anything by itself. You can say. Uh, lambda functions they disrupt everything or you know any other piece of technology what they actually do is they bump up people's expectations and when people have higher expectations then that's where ideas start flowing and then that's where they disrupt disrupt the industry and in amenity we what we do is we provide any of our customers anyone for example for, for that case if you approach us the ability to leverage NLP Tools, natural language processing tools, um, as if they were experts in NLPs without having to actually go through all the headache of learning it and building it themselves, et cetera. A good story about that is that companies, when you told them customers, future potential customers, we told them, hey, we're so great at NLP, you know, hire us. They didn't care, right? Because the tech didn't they didn't care about the tech. What they cared about is what they can do with it, and if they had higher expectations, now they could, they could imagine what problems it could solve for them. Generally speaking, if you look at an NLP, natural language processing, uh, or any machine learning, uh, for, that, for that matter, process, you'd see that it could take uh, several months to, uh, to build locally, just homegrown, homegrown team, and then have some uh, specialization a lot of money has to be involved. With amenity, what we do is we squeeze it down. We have all the tools to squeeze it down to several weeks uh, and very little, uh, very little uh, um, uh, money up front. Just a little bit about us. We are a little over the 60 uh, employees. We're half uh, in uh, New York, half in, uh, in Israel. Uh, raised a little over $25 million and we're backed by Intel State of Mind, Star, and all state in the insurance industry. And these are some of our, of our customers. And what, a nice thing to see here is that these are not any low-hanging fruits. Like, you, you go to NASDAQ, they have really high expectations. They want things to work all the time. And so if you go and say, oh, I'll move from, uh, you know, serverful infrastructure that everybody has to serverless, they don't. They go they don't go lightly about it. They don't go say, "Oh yeah, sure, go with the the bleeding edge. We'll you know we'll back you up with it." Um, this is how our architecture, our manager's architecture, looked like about a year and a half ago when I joined the company. Uh, every circle you see there is a Docker-based microservice. Uh, it's hosted on ECS. Um, and they're all trying to speak with each other, trying to figure out what's going on. And then about a year and a half ago, our CEO contacted me and he said, uh, he wants me to join and here's a nice challenge for you. He said, you know, I'm gonna take care of bringing 100x more customers. You just need to take care of making things 100x faster and by the way, I wanna serve them 100x more data and oh, you've gotta make it cheaper and I said, sure, why not, let's, let's give it a go. Um, we thought about our principles, what it means as an engineering team to be able to serve uh, and, to, and to adhere to such a fit. And one of the key things that we wanted to preserve are, is our agility as developers, as teams, and as a company. Right? If, uh, if Moody's or Bank of America, they come to us and say, I need something quickly Uh, we just can go and say, okay, well, our next iteration is two months down the road. (laughs) We've got to deliver quickly. Um, We need simple deployments. So in order to enable and empower our developers to try out new ideas, and we need flexible scaling because a company might say, you know, process these 100 million documents, see what you find there, and so we have to scale up extremely fast and then scale down. This is a little shift that we did in Amenity. We went from Docker to serverless, TDD all the way, uh, lower level understanding of our infrastructure. That means that our expectations from our developers increased dramatically. Every develop- we, we canceled DevOps as a, as a, as a, as a different uh, uh, entity, and we merged DevOps and QA. Every developer is a DevOps. That works for startups our size maybe at the 200. 200- People, maybe, probably wouldn't work for, for Amazon or Google. But the point here is that we wanted to make it so that every developer understands the underlying infrastructure. Just imagine the amount of strength every developer has if they understand OS, right? What's going on in the, in the scheduler? You know, how to do, how do access threads? And then they have higher amount of power if they know how the CPU works, you know, different... Uh, um, uh, L1, L2, L3 cache. If you, if you, if you, if you squeeze all that information into, into people, you expect them to know about it, then you get higher, better results. And so this is uh, how our architecture changed. Java, Docker, EC2 to Python serverless uh, on Lambda. Um, and one of the key things here is, is that serverless allowed very confined understanding and, and to make an impact quicker on every developer. The developer didn't have to understand all the networking and everything. They could just look at one operation, one Lambda function, one microservice, and then understand it dramatically uh, uh, better than anything else they did. They could, they could fiddle and they can play and say, I want uh, more memory. I want more, uh, more time for it to run. I want, it to, to, I want this Lambda function to speak with other uh, services and they're confined, and so they can drill really, really, really deep. This is how our infrastructure looks like today. First of all, there's something nice to note here: there's an infrastructural pattern that we're probably going to change now that Lambda released, that Amazon released uh, Lambda async. But every microservice speaks uh, uh, Queue uh, Lambda with some database and then a notification. Everything from left to right. Every, every uh, uh, green block that you see there is a microservice. Far fewer microservices than what you used to have. On the left-hand side, all the data coming in. We have about one million messages. Messages meaning articles, news articles, earning code transcript, SEC filings, documents that could be as long as two paragraph or as, or, or as short as two paragraphs or as long as 100 pages. And they all have to go through the system and be cleaned and properly uh, uh, analyzed and then exposed on the other side as API or SaaS service or, or, or um, uh, dashboard. One of the way that serverless jives with the culture that uh, McKinsey talked about and the one we wanted in amenity is that it increases, empowers increases independence of the individual and of the teams. Smaller services means that people can completely understand what they work on and then and then glean insights on those just services. Um, it increases the local simplicity. So if I wanna make a change and deploy it, it's really easy, it's just this one Lambda function or two or three, but very, very confined. I need to change that i can change it very easily i have the tools to change to, to deploy to maybe 5% of the users maybe then 10 20 etc and then if, if i have a problem i can roll it back micro optimizations become very easy to measure and then deploy so you can you can speak with a developer or a team and tell them you know here is this microservice make it more scalable or make it Uh, Cheaper, or run faster, or whatever it is you want—they're very easy to distinguish between other with 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 other microservices. Um, As as leaders, it allows to increase expectations on 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 both a local and global basis on every developer, so that I could I could articulate my expectations and tell people, okay, now I expect this microservice to really become. Uh, optimize, or to or to run faster, or to become cheaper. This is uh, some of this is a good example of how much thing cost us when we moved from long running servers, auto scaling Docker to serverless. Um, this is a normalized cost. Generally speaking, this is about the cost of one million documents that we process. Uh, in dollars. And so you can see that even running Docker containers or Kubernetes and having them scale up and scale down really, really quickly doesn't have the same effect of having Lambda functions or serverless really scale up really efficiently and neatly into exactly what it is that you want it to do. Another example is how much time things take us, right? Uh, you can see here the percentile of, of how many seconds it takes us to process between uh, all our our articles, news articles and et cetera, between when they arrive, become available on the internet and until we make them available on our API. And so 25% of all the documents that we process every day, so about 250,000, become available within 40 seconds of when they are released to the public. This is about 4x or 9x times faster than if done on a Docker container. The drag here is now, as managers, you always have to ask yourself when to, instead of asking when to split a microservice into into two, a microservice into two, you have to ask yourself when to join. Otherwise, you'll end up with a myriad of of Lambda functions and they're all trying to do different things and different people in different uh, 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 teams would write essentially the same Lambda functions because they didn't know that other people wrote the same thing already. And so that's a drag. It means that you require a very strong architecture in place and very good communication between the team, team leads, team architects. And one of the things that I like, people ask me why, why we did NLP over serverless. We are the only company that, that I know that do NLP over serverless. By the way, if anyone here does NLP over serverless, I would like to recruit you, and so raise your hand and I will do that. Uh, but uh, it's a problem because because NLP is, is, is such a, a resource intensive uh, operation. And so so it just jives well with, with you know, just give it as GPU and, and let it run, um, but then it costs a lot of money. Um, I think serverless for us as, as, as an architecture and, and what affect our culture allowed us to try and do things that are almost impossible. So first of all, people ask me, why almost? And that's not to get too nitpicky. If it's impossible, then you can't do it. Um, But how do you know that it's almost impossible? Unfortunately for me, there is no easy way to know it's almost impossible. Most people would tell you it's impossible to do NLP over uh, serverless. But you you do the calculation and then you go, okay, I think I can do that. Um, but it's really hard to recruit for that. This is how our NLP stack looks like. This is roughly how most NLP stacks look like. It's a 12 process step. There are three other uh, steps that you can see here. Generally speaking, if you ever wanna do natural language processing, uh, the first, I wanna say, six, you're definitely gonna go through. Um, what we do in Amenity is we have to retrain every one of those uh, for the financial institute language but we also had to write, rewrite each one of those so they will fit a Lambda function. Generally speaking, if you just take off-the-shelf NLP tools, they, all those processes will run on the same computer, just one after another. Um, so by doing that, by splitting into the 12 layers, serverless helped us with our incremental delivery. The 12 layers now become each layer is its own different Lambda bundle or function. And we can change each and every one of them as we would like. Um, and it helps with, with, with free developers from their past perception that everything is gotta be monolithic and this is how you do NLP and they could move forward. This is how, how our older architecture looked like and how our new one looks like. Clear NLP, Java, Docker, EC2, most NLP works that way we moved to spacey, Python, but Python wasn't compressed enough, so we had to do Cython and C, and then we could deploy it in AWS Lambda. A lot of the, the tiny pieces of, of NLP, nair tagging, whatever it is, uh, uh, entity recognition, we had to rewrite in such a way that was, that was small enough to fit inside Uh, one Lambda function. With the main, you know, McKinsey suggested we always ask our developers, you know, why do you do the thing that you do? The main thing that we want to accomplish here is we want to shorten the creativity cycle, right? If you build a good architecture, if you build a good culture, the time it takes between someone having an idea until they try it out and uh, try it out, not not necessarily in production, but preferably in production, try it out and see if it works or doesn't work. The shorter it is, the better the state of the company is. Uh, You could go as deep or as wide as you want, algorithms or architecture. This is the state where we got to, where NLP was roughly 100x faster. Uh, uh, You can see loading a model An LP model normally takes a few tens of seconds, now it takes a few uh, tens or hundreds of milliseconds. The memory footprint went dramatically down from one gigabyte, which could never run a Lambda function, to 50 megabytes, we can easily uh, fit in a Lambda function. Uh, Our next goal is about one billion documents in less than an hour. Decision-making gone serverless. This is uh, one of the things that I, I try to speak about with my team all the time. Most of our decisions, most of the day, are done by exhaustion. This is how decisions are usually are us- usually happen. Someone talks with someone, they go, oh, I can't figure out which option is better. I'm just gonna go with you because I wanna go to lunch or whatever, right? Or we sat in a room for an hour and a half and then someone said, okay, okay, you know, I just stop talking. I'm just gonna do what you say. And, and it takes too long to gather all the data. Sometimes, you know, sometimes the decision between two options, two options are too close. It's like um, it's like when you stand on the ground floor between two skyscrapers. One of them is sixty stories high, and the other one is is sixty-two stories tall. And you go, which one is is taller? And you can't tell because you're at the ground floor. And and the way to get more information is you know, you go to another skyscraper, a third one, and then you look and you you take your protector. Protractor, and you try to figure out the angle, and then you'll get more information, or you can just get into one of them and try. Right, you just go zip to, this first, to the 60th floor and see which building is taller. And, and you can do that easily with serverless because you can deploy the tiniest change really, really quickly, and then figure out if you broke anything, and if you did, you undo it. And that's really important. Uh, the last thing I want to say about serverless is that even though I like it a lot, it's not for everything, obviously. And 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 people get a lot, they get a emotional about it. The problem with emotional decision making is that it's often irreversible. And so if, if, if you think about uh, uh, serverless, first of all, I'll, I'll be happy to help and, and talk about it later. But There are easy ways to figure out if it's worth it or not worth it. The basic one is to try a different thing and see if it still hits your goal, right? Uh, I read an article, a post, someone said, oh, serverless increased my cost by 10x. All they did was serve a static website. Obviously, it will impact their cost negatively. Um, But if you do other things, it could really, really help. This is an example here uh, of how our product actually looks like uh, you can see how you can uh, easily uh, figure out, what you see here is a bunch of uh, financial numbers about how much people uh, talk about um, ESG, uh, uh, how many uh, emissions they have, and how many accidents they had, and everything here is powered by, uh, by our serverless uh, infrastructure. And we're available on the marketplace, which is really uh, hot for us because it's only a few days old. Thank you very much. Does anyone have any questions? I'll be happy to answer. Yes. Uh, how important is it for you to have an environment for your developers to test their code with this in the cloud? Do you try to do that? Do you try to run things locally, or do you, have, do you have to actually push everything? Yeah, so the question was uh if we test things locally, how important it is it to test locally? In which environment and and so we still test we still try that out by the way we try a lot of things out uh, initially we had our local then dev stage environment a uh, dev stage and prod environment right now the way we go about it is first of all obviously we have to test we write tests in the lower levels, but also we test in production we test in production a lot and that's where we're going um, and so and so by writing tests during development at TD you can uh, root out a lot of the of the basic uh, problems, but you've got to test in some environment, and we chose to test in production. Any other? Yes. So, okay, so the question is when we were migrating from container based, serverful to serverless, how did we test each and every one of the services? Um, so, the way we did it is first of all, we took a bunch of developers and we trained them. Initially, we put them aside. We said, okay, this is a great fit for the company. We, initially, we need information, we need to know. We need to know that serverless is the right thing for us with all the infrastructure for it. And so we spend a few months training people and building this basic um, architecture from beginning to end. And then once you have the basic architecture from beginning to end with everything, with logging, with testing, with everything, full deployment, then you can take and replace. You can start replacing things. But just remember that there's a lot of um, training and... um, questions that are gonna be asked. Yes? How many How many what? Pages of content you processing per minute. How many, okay, how many pages are we processing per minute? The way it looks like is like this. Every day there are a, hundred, there are a million new documents that come in every day, a million new documents. So that's uh, roughly about a thousand or so every, every minute. Um, But that's just the ongoing. When a new NLP use case is being presented, say, you know, uh, a company comes and say, I wanna find out all the times that uh, other companies talked about risk in their portfolio. And so now you have to go back like 10 years and you have to figure out, you have to process all those documents. And so you have maybe two hours, three hours to process 10 million documents a lot of spinning up and down is going to take place at that moment. Yes No, no, we okay, so the question is if we had to stop and then rewrite everything we know we couldn't stop because hundred x more clients meant that they were coming still coming, so we never stopped um, we. We did. We took a hybrid approach. Number one, a new feature we we uh, built in, uh, in from from scratch on Serverless. But another thing that we did is we start replacing uh, with the existing architecture. We start replacing it piece by piece. You, you can never stop. I mean, I tried to ask my CEO. I told him, "Can you stop selling for a, a year and a half?" He said, "No." Didn't work. Yes. It's not for everything. Serverless isn't. Okay, so why do I say that serverless isn't for everything and did I try anything that that it didn't work on? For us, it worked for everything because we did a calculation to begin, to begin with. Uh, it's not for everything because, you know, Amazon has almost 200 services. Uh, it's not gonna do everything for you, right? It's very specific, look, a computer can be in one of four states at any given moment, one or, two, or, or, or at least one state in any given moment in time. It can be idle, it can be bound by CPU, by RAM, or by I.O. Um, if you are in a place where uh, most of the time your resources are underutilized primarily by CPU, then you should probably try and go to serverless. Yes? What was the experience with debugging? Debugging, debugging. debugging our serverless code? Uh, yeah, the problem with uh, cutting edge is that there aren't a lot of good uh, tools out there uh, to, to write. But serverless code is still Python mostly in YAML, right? And you, you, do, you debug in production a lot, that's, that's for sure. Uh, we also wrote our own tools a little bit, but you know, you write a tool and then two months later someone else writes a tool and it's better, you want to replace. Yeah. That shift in language seems like it would be a big a big change for the team, John mm-hmm. Python. Yeah. A lot of that worn out by just pulse our time and what we found the environment's life. Uh okay, so the shift we did several shifts, but the question is uh how did we work or how do we combine the shift in architecture, the shift in, in language, also shift into tdd so a mind mindset shift. Uh yeah. So when I started the company, it was Java 8, but Java 8 was being uh, declared as, uh, as the end of life. Uh, you, can cho- you could have you chosen, we could have chosen to go to Java 11 and now Java 12, but we didn't. Uh, Java is a very, still, it's a uh, uh, um, heavy language, heavy in a lot of places. And so uh, you can see that, that for example, uh, a Lambda function could take 200 megabytes, 250 megabytes, In Python, but only 50 in Java, right? It doesn't leave a lot of room. Um, We had to make a change. It's true. Some of our change is to is to uh, retrain developers, Java developers to Python. The ROI on that is amazing. They are fast as lightning. Three months in, that's amazing. Uh, Yes. I can, I can elaborate maybe later about how we test in production, but not right now. There are a lot of tools involved for that. Uh, debugging in production, testing in production. It's great. You're going to love it. Any, any other questions? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I can show you. This is how it looked like. I had the the graph right here. So the question is, if we have uh, uh, ultimately we have uh, are we on? Yeah, ultimately, if we have one million documents every day, then why do we need to spin up things and spin them down and spin up and spin them down and then and then instead of just holding a few servers to do everything? Um, uh, because, so first of all, the numbers. $3.8 for every $1 on auto-scaling doc, Docker, even Kubernetes versus serverless for us, for us, right? And the reason is that um, one million documents, uh, every day, and say one hundred thousand seconds, you get about ten documents every second. If you can make it so that uh, processing and process has let 's say that processing has five or six steps. If you can make it so that your processing steps would take less than one millisecond every every step then then you 're good to go you can it 'll work for you. But if every step is bound differently, one step is bound CPU, one step is bound bound IO, one step is bound uh, um, um, RAM, then you're gonna waste resources along the way if you just have one computer waiting. You know, writing to S3, it's still waiting, right? And so you can really optimize a lot. For us, we were able to optimize it 4X, even in that use case. Any additional questions? Yes. long cold, okay, serverless application will have long cold start uh, time. That is only true, first of all, it's, it's okay. It's something like from, from, it's a notion that was kept from maybe a year or two ago. Uh, you can keep all your serverless application warm all the time at almost no cost, and then their warm up time or spin up time would be about 50 milliseconds and it'll be almost no cost. There are tools to do that for you. Just keep everything warm uh, at almost zero cost. Great, any additional questions? Perfect, thank you very much, everyone. It was great.